This is a Hot Pie Original. Here are the set of things I'm going to allow to make me happy or sad. This is where I'm going to invest my emotional energy and the energy in my life. And these are the things I'm going to choose not to care about. And so a high performer for me is a person who is, it doesn't matter to me what they pick, right? Like I'm not in the business of telling people that the thing that they picked is an appropriate or inappropriate thing to value. Mm-hmm. But it is that they've decided what they're going to value and they have focus on it. For almost 20 years, Matt Wallet has been applying behavioral science to practical problems. After leaving academia, Matt had a successful career in his executive lead in startups to the Fortune 500 and back again before joining Frog as the executive director of behavioral science, where he focuses on helping organizations build their own behavioral science capabilities. In this episode, we discuss the simple process of behavior design that anyone can use to create change. Matt has also discussed with us how he evaluated startups when he was with Microsoft Ventures and how to design your life for high performance. But before we get started, please stop what you're doing and take 20 seconds and follow us on whatever listening platform you are on. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. This will dramatically improve our ability to reach more listeners as reviews and follows impact the algorithms which run these platforms. And because this is so important, in the next two weeks, I'm going to do a 15-minute Zoom call with a randomly selected person that left us a five-star rating and submitted a review. No purchase necessary. It's now time for the It's Freaking Awesome Story of the Week, brought to you by The Festive Kitchen. Every week, we highlight stories of people who went above and beyond and thought about someone else before themselves. And this week, we're mixing it up a bit and featuring an extra special company, The Festive Kitchen. Let's snack it forward. Each pouch of their nosh bag, It's Freaking Awesome, features one of our fallen heroes, and 30 cents from every unit sold is donated to carry the load, a charity benefiting those who have given the ultimate sacrifice in our military, firefighters, police, and rescue personnel. Carry the Load is founded by Clint Bruce, one of our past guests and a longtime friend. So be sure to check out his interview. He's pretty freaking awesome, too. Thank you for being a partner with a mission that transcends the ideals of ordinary companies and surpasses expectations. As you all put it, it's phenomenal food and fanatical service. But before we get to my interview with Matt, right now, I just want to ask you something. Tell me if you know this story. You go out and spend hundreds of dollars on a fancy wearable device, hoping that it'll help you achieve your wellness goals, and then it ends up in the sock drawer. Sound familiar? Or how about this? You follow those cookie cutter clickbait health recommendations like walking 10,000 steps a day and all you do is get anxious and demotivated when life gets in the way and you can't hit that magic number. It's time for an evolution of expectation and results. And that's where AIM7 comes in. AIM7 sets busy people free to live their values every day by building lifelong healthy habits. We use the health data from your Apple Watch to create small, scientific, personalized recommendations for whatever you want to do. Sleep better, increase your energy, reduce your stress, or lose some weight. If you're ready to finally unlock the power of your Apple Watch, then go to www. That aim7.com. That's AIM7.com and get early and free access to our exclusive program. AIM7 starts small and starts with you. Your health data, your values to get to your thriving life. But now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. I'm really excited to have you on today because 
Matt, you, you have a fascinating background. Let's start off by getting clear on terms and definitions, because that's in your book. If nobody, if we're not clear on terms, everything's going to fall apart. Uh, so what is a behavior scientist? So a behavioral scientist, so, so I love specificity. So let's talk about behavioral science okay. and behavioral scientist. Okay, let's because do that. I use, I use those in very specific ways that not everybody agrees with. Okay. Uh, and I can provoke amazing arguments by, by defining them. And if you want me to argue with you, I will. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> well, you have a PhD and I don't. So this might be argumentative. For you. This is going to be great. So behavioral science to me is a practice, right? It's, it's a verb. It's a thing that you do in mm-hmm. the world, right? And it's about centralizing behavior as an outcome and using the scientific method to create things, services, products, et cetera, whatever, mm-hmm. environments that change behavior. Okay. Now, this is many ways, in some ways, even just the definition of behavioral science in that way is somewhat controversial. Often people think, for example, of behavioral science as I will in a lab prove something using the scientific method and then apply it to the external world. Mm. I, in fact, do not mean that. I mean, we will use the scientific method to like create change, not we will use science to create something that we then use to create change. Yeah, that's a recipe for disaster because what works in a lab doesn't always work in the outside world because you have all these different covariates or confounding variables that you can't control for. And unless you're testing this thing live in an organic environment, you just don't know. A hundred percent. You know, I actually like the football example, right? There are, you can run it in practice. Yep. You can plan it really well. And then when you try and actually run it in a game, you go, Oh no, that doesn't work at all. No. <laughs> so that's why in actually they, I don't know if you know this, but coaches script plays. So what you do is, is in practice, you, you watch the film, you evaluate like what have they, what are their tendencies in the past? And then the, and then the offensive coordinator will script the first 10 to 15 plays. And if, you know, and that's why a lot of teams come out and they're hot right off the start because they're attacking all the weaknesses or you are off script within three plays. And you're like, they showed up in something I did not expect. All right. Now we've got to change and pivot. Um, so, you know, go ahead. Behavioral science. Okay. That's behavioral behavioral science. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you said behavioral scientist. Yes. So I would argue if you are centralizing behavior mm-hmm. and you're using the scientific method to create it, you are by definition, a behavioral scientist in the same way that I would say, if football is a game that you play, mm-hmm. then when you are playing the game, you are a football player. True. Right. By definition of the fact that you are doing the action that is the game that is football. So you're saying 100%. parents are behavioral scientists. A hundred percent. I'm yeah. saying janitors are behavioral scientists. Yeah. As long as they're doing two things, two critical things. Okay. What are they? Explicitly said, this is the behavior I'm trying to create. Here's whose behavior I'm trying to change. This is what's going to happen. Like, here's where I'm trying to get to. Mm-hmm. And I've used the scientific method to get there. So there is, there are parents that are, uh, that are doing behavioral science and there mm-hmm. are parents that are not doing behavioral science, right? Some parents are not articulating the behavior they want and they're not using science to create it. They're not using experimentation to create it. They are not behavioral scientists. Some janitors are just mopping the floor. Right. Some janitors are saying, you know what? I don't want people to litter. Here's what litter means to me. Here's what people means to me. Mm. And I'm going to try some things until I figure out a way that minimizes the amount of litter that happens. And that janitor, in my opinion, is a behavioral scientist. They don't need a PhD. They don't. It's not about prior training. Mm -hmm. Admittedly, 
they had to learn the scientific method somewhere. So there are things that might prepare you to practice behavioral science, like, for example, a psychology degree, which is, teaches you experimentation and human experimentation as a discipline. Mm-hmm. But it's like there could I, I don't exempt the idea of a prodigy, right? In the same way that there could be somebody who wasn't really taught football in the formal way, but just kind of can do it. The Bubba Watson of golf. That's right. Yeah, he just self-taught. He plays a crazy slice, and that's just what he does. But he he wins the Masters. <laughs> that's right. But yeah. that is, but it works. It, it, it achieves the outcome. Right. And so I certainly – I think we have to hold two things in our mind that sometimes people are challenged by, which is there are things that make you more likely to be a better behavioral scientist, mm-hmm. including, for example – studying psychology and experimental design and statistics and some other things that probably are helpful tools. Mm -hmm. But that should not preclude the fact that you could have none of those things and still be a behavioral scientist because you are doing the thing that is behavioral science, even if you didn't come at it through the traditional way. So you, as a P you are a doctor. I am not a doctor. So there are a bunch of people who have PhDs in social psychology or other disciplines that would say, in order to be a behavioral scientist, you must have a PhD. And as a guy who left a PhD program, I don't really believe that. No, you've proved that. You've written a book about it. <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. No, but you know what I'm saying. Anybody can write a book. Yeah, anybody can write a book. Okay, so do people ever get squeamish about the idea of you designing a behavior for somebody else? Absolutely. Right? We get the... Um, people get... Uh, some people have an intuitive disgust reaction, right? They were brought up in such a way that that the notion of controlling someone else's behavior feels really weird. Mm. And what's funny is I was one of those people. So I actually, when I went into college, had no intention of studying psychology because I grew up in rural Oregon. I didn't know any psychologists. I don't think there were any psychologists within a 50 mile radius of me. There were no therapists. There were no, like none of that happened right uh, near where I was. And so I thought of psychologists as people who sort of, told you what you think and manipulate how you think and things that I was very uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. But what I learned over time and what I've come to believe is we are all doing that all the time. It's just a matter of how consciously, right? My child manipulates my behavior all the time. He does things to make my behavior more or less likely, right? Mm -hmm. He knows if he comes up and is really cute and cuddles in my lap, it's likely that I'm going to kind of hug him back. And by the way, that's essential to our world. Right. Because if that wasn't true, like if cuddling in my lap sometimes produced hugs and sometimes produced like face slaps, right. that kid is going to be, you know, have, lives in this tremendously unpredictable world. All the behavioral science is doing is changing probability ratios. There are people for every behavior, there are people who already do a version of it, mm. right? And all we're doing is changing how likely it is that people will do those things. Now, where I get squeamish is, what is the behavior? That's the thing we should really be squeamish about. Because you wrote in your right? book, designing for behavior change is about creating the conditions to allow us to act on our original motivation. So your son, like your your motivation is to love your son. 100%. He's creating an environment to where he gets love back. Maybe there's a product or a service like you know, Google works on like behavioral questions, like action oriented questions, like I need this. And so now you create a funnel or a, a, you can talk about your iterative design process, which I think is fascinating. And I'm eagerly awaiting the diagrams. Um, but 
you know, you're creating the situation so that they can act on those original desires. Am I correct? Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, there's a chapter in the book on ethics mm-hmm. because this is a complicated thing, mm-hmm. right? And how specific is the original desire, right? I didn't wake up this morning and think, hey, I really want to diet Coke. Right. Like I didn't have, that wasn't my originating desire, right? Coke fulfilled the need. You know, I had a diet Coke because I woke up early and now tired and I want to do this podcast with you. So I had a diet Coke because <laughs> so I would be awake, right? The original motivation wasn't drink a diet Coke. The original motivation was bring my best self to, to this conversation with this person who I respect and want to have a good conversation with. Mm. And, and diet Coke was sort of the intervention to get there. They harvested that original motivation. And so I think of it less binarily and more like a scale. Is this, are you honoring my authentic need? Right. And are you, and, and secondarily, are you doing that in a way that is respectful, like both outcome and process matter? Let's go back to football. I don't know why we're using football today. Let's use football. Let's use football. Ball's coming up. Because football. Yeah. Right? I have an authentic motivation to be a really good football player. That doesn't mean I want my coach to like hit me with a shovel. Right. right? Every time I do something wrong so that I become a better player. Right? The outcome matches. We both want me to be a better player. But the process is is not appropriate. Right. So both outcome and process have to be aligned. Right? This is an acceptable way of honoring my motivation. So you want to talk about your process that you present? By the way, this is a fantastic book. It's called Start at the End. Uh, if you're listening to this or watching it on YouTube, you definitely need to buy this. Um, how to build products that create change. I I have a startup right now. And so when I read this title, I was like, I have to get this book. And then when you and I talked, I was like, I got to have Matt on so we can discuss this. But can you talk about the IDP? Sure. So, so the IDP, the intervention design process is... Um, so if we think about at the top of this pyramid is behaviors and outcomes, science as a process, we then kind of break that up into four distinct sections, right? How do we go about doing that? So the first one is, is what we think of as behavioral strategy. We have to define the outcome that we want, right? And we could do that in a really formalized way, right? In the book, I use a behavioral statement, mm-hmm. right? Which is when population has motivation and limitations, they will behave as measured behavior as measured by data. And I, so like, can I just pause for one second? Because you're already hitting a question I was going to ask you later. This behavioral statement is so critical. A lot of companies have, and I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, I have a vision statement for my company. And you say a statement without a behavior is a North Star you can't navigate. Can you talk about the Microsoft example so people understand this a little bit clearer? Sure, absolutely. So so I think a vision statement is important. It's motivational. It's helpful in Mm -hmm. lots of ways. But it isn't a map to where you want to go. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that behavioral science is about science fiction because we're trying to create a world of behavior that does not yet exist. If it existed, we wouldn't be having to do anything because we'd already be there. Mm. Right. So we're trying to create this imaginary world. And so we need to say, define what that imaginary world is. Who's doing what in this imaginary world? Mm -hmm. Right. At both high levels and and sort of more specifics, like what is physically, literally happening that we can observe in the world that we want. So, you know, Microsoft, uh, you know, its original vision statement was something along the lines of, you know, a computer in every, uh, you know, on every desk in every house and, and every workplace. And which is in some ways a very concrete vision, right? I can imagine a world where that's true, but it's not actually behavioral, right? 
I could imagine a world in which there is a there is a computer on every desk, but nobody uses them, right? Or not in the ways that we originally intended. Mm-hmm. I think we're getting closer, actually. As as Satya came in, he sort of said, "Well, we've kind of accomplished this. We need to do something different," and and started talking about sort of human productivity. Right? The mission of Microsoft is to to enhance human productivity. That's getting closer because it's a productivity is closer to a behavior. The problem is in specific. I can't navigate towards productivity if we don't agree on what productivity is. And I bet if you and I spent some time on it, you, even you and I would not have the same definition of what productivity sure. looks like from a behavioral perspective. Um, if I asked you, you know, one good, one good thing I sometimes ask people to do is describe two people. Think of the most productive person you know, mm-hmm. and then think of the least productive person you know, and then tell me about them, Right. And you might say, well, the most productive person I know gets up really early. And I'm like, well, is that what you mean? Is what you mean the behavior of getting up really early in the morning? And you're like, no, not really. No. He happens to get up early in the morning in order to like accomplish these things. But it isn't actually about getting up early. That's like a symptom. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Tell me more about this person. Well, they're focused all of the time. Okay. Is it? Is that what it is? Is it about focus? How do you know they're focused? Well, he's sitting at his computer and he's busily typing. Okay. Is that the behavior you care about? Typing? Yeah. Like, and you can start to get to this, like, what is it we actually physically, literally mean? Mm. And, and by doing that, we can navigate this, right? We can start to understand. And, and, and if there's different kind of outcome statements than people are used to in some ways. Again, going with football. As a football coach, you're like, I want a winning record. I want to win all the games. That's an outcome. Mm-hmm. You have to have a behavioral theory about what wins games, right? Some coaches think big plays win games. Some coaches think, you know, reliability wins games and big play coaches tend to build passing offenses Mm. and reliability coaches tend to build running offenses because they have a theory of behavior that Mm. backs up some outcome. So we can use squishy words like productivity. I want to win every game. It's efficiency. I want people to be productive. It's efficiency. Right. But we have to go. We have to have a theory of behavior that is. All right. What does that really mean? Right. Right. What that means is my team reliably gets four yards on every play we run. Mm-hmm. Four yards, four yards, four yards, four yards. 100% of the time, we get four yards. And that's how we win games. That's the behavior I want. And I'm going to design that behavior. I am going to do everything in my training camp, in my coaching, literally everything about my entire staff is going to be designed towards a particular set of behaviors that is running for four yards in the most reliable way. So we have to start with a vision that's anchored in behavior. Anchored in behavior. Okay. Backed up by a behavioral statement. So you can have a vision statement, but you got to say, what does that really mean? Physically, literally, observably mean. Okay. Right? That's behavior strategy. We're going to take a break for just a moment to talk about how you can get exclusive content designed for high performers just like you. If you're looking for information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter, Adaptation. Just go to www.ericquorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with a desire to improve. We know that some of you have been trying to sign up for the newsletter, and we just found out that there was a problem with our contact manager. The issue has been resolved, and to show our appreciation for your patience, when you sign up, you'll get my ultimate sleep cheat sheet, which includes easy-to-implement strategies to get a good night's sleep every night. Now, back to the show. Then, right, we talked about science fiction. So now I've described the world I want, but I'm stuck in the world that I have. Mm. But what's interesting is, 
some of the people in the world that I have are already doing the thing that I want, right? And so I can take advantage of that. Some, mm-hmm. We use five behavioral categories. Always, never, sometimes, started, stopped, right? Mm. Always, never, sometimes, started, stopped. So let's take a player since we're sticking with football. Let's take a player. I have a guy who always runs the ball for four yards, finds mm. my four yards. A guy who sometimes does that. A guy who never does that. A guy who didn't used to do that, but has recently started. And then a guy who used to do that reliably, but has recently stopped. Mm-hmm. And in having conversations with each of those people, I can start to understand the differences between them. Now, this is the next key concept we have to get here, which is that all behavior is the result of pressures, right? So there are things that make a behavior more likely, what we call promoting pressures, that sort of making it, pushing up on it. And then they're inhibiting pressures, things that are pushing down on it that make a behavior less likely, Mm -hmm. right? And so to use really crude measures, we might say, well, hey, you know, Eric always runs for four yards because every time he does that, you say good job. Getting a good job from his coach, that's a promoting pressure. It's a reason to do something. Makes him feel good, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe there are weak inhibiting pressures. Nobody, you know, it's relatively easy for him to run four yards. Now, you might imagine another player who never does. It. They have the same promoting pressures. If they do it, their coach says good job. But it turns out they're not very fast or very strong. So every time they try and do it, doesn't really work. Right. They have strong inhibiting pressures. There's no difference in the motivation between the two. They just had different inhibiting pressures. Right? That's one possibility. There's another possibility. Right? Because we're imagining imaginary worlds. Another possibility is there's a guy who does it. He gets a good job and it's relatively easy for him. High promoting pressure, low inhibiting pressure. Then there's a guy who he gets a good job. Uh, or sorry. There's a guy who it's relatively easy to do. But his coach doesn't say good job. If he does it, his coach doesn't say anything. Whereas if he runs a passing play, his coach says something. So now he has the same inhibiting pressures as the other guy. It's relatively easy to do. Mm-hmm. But now we've changed the promoting pressure. He's not getting the reward for doing it, So he's not doing it. Right? So if we want to change people's behavior, we have two options. If we want more of a behavior, we're either strengthening promoting pressure, right? Or we're weakening inhibiting pressures. We're making it easier to do. Mm. And so if I said... If we took the guy who has trouble doing it, adding more promoting pressure, saying like giving more attaboys is not going to help because that's not the problem. He we feels need, sufficiently motivated. He's he not good at it. Yeah, he's not good at it. So he, we need to take him out of the equation or we need to develop his physical strength and capabilities. 100%. I'm going to help him run. I'm going to do weight training. Mm-hmm. We're going to get the running coach to work with him. We're going to lower those inhibiting pressures too. He's sufficiently motivated, but we're going to make it easy. Yep. <clears throat> the other guy, it's already easy for him. So I could give him unlimited extra coaching and it's not going to change his behavior because it's already easy. Mm-hmm. Right? I have to understand, oh, what's going on for him is he's insufficiently motivated. It's not enough promoting pressure. So I need to give him more attaboys. Right. Say, hey, man, good run more often because it's easy for him. And, and what's key is, and we have all been in that place, right? As a coach, you've been in this place where you did the wrong thing, right? You were like, he's not doing it. So I'm just going to train the heck out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then you look back and you're like, training was not the problem. No. I just needed to tell him that was what I wanted. And I yes. needed to praise him when he did it. <laughs> that is like, it's so how do you identify those pressures? So that's where those conversations with those five groups, always, sometimes, never started, stopped, okay. come in. Because we live in a world in which there are naturally co-varying pressures, right? It's different for different people. And so as I talk to them, I start to hear it. So if everybody in the always says like, hey, you know what? I'm pretty good at running. 
Mm. Oh, mm, maybe that's the thing. It's low inhibiting pressure, right? And the people who are in the never group say, you know what? I'm not very good at running. So user experience feedback, like if you have a product, uh, you, te- you, you put this thing out there and then you want to be talking to these folks. What, how do you, how do you um, design those conversations so you can get the best answers in the, out of those situations? So I love that you said the word design because mm-hmm. I, and, and conversation because I really think it's a conversation. Mm-hmm. Too many people go in with scripts and they treat the script like a goal. Mm. I'm going to try and get the answer to A, B, C, D, E, and F. That's not what a script is for. You should write a script. But the script is just in case I run out of questions to ask, here are some question prompts. Mm. The real key is I'm a sponge. My job is just to get Eric to talk for as long as I can get him to talk. Mm. It's like going on a date. Right. I don't go on a date and I'm like, Hey, I got to make sure that I talk about like my wealth, my kid, my like religious belief. Like it's not a checklist. Right. Right. My job on a date is to make you have fun. Right. And in the course of you having fun, I'll learn a bunch of things about you. Because if we go in thinking we know what it is and looking for it, we'll miss all the other things. Mm. Right. I've had that. I hope you've had that experience. I've had that experience many times, right? Yeah. I think I know what it is. So I go in and I start looking for, I have what we call confirmation bias, mm-hmm. so meaning I believe it's X. And so I go looking for evidence of X, right? But it's actually Y. I just completely missed it because I'm so focused on like X, 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 X. Right. And so you just got to sponge those conversations. And then you want to look at data, right? Yeah. You want to use quant and qual together. Because quant can tell you what, and qual can tell you why, mm-hmm. right? So quant says, hey, you know what? Women are a lot better at this than men. No idea why, mm-hmm. but I can tell you looking at you know thousands of trials, women are a lot better at this than men. But the moment you go have some conversations with women and have some conversations with men, themes will emerge. Right. You will very clearly hear, here is a thing women are saying that men are not saying or mm-hmm. vice versa. Gotcha. I love this idea of just being a sponge and then confirming, well, actually not going in with confirmation bias, but as you start to see things, confirming it with data, um, yes. because I think that's, that's missing in a lot of processes and, um, and it can totally end up, you know, chase, you end up chasing your tail for a very long time. Yeah. It's, it, one of the, I think the fundamental flaws of many modern organizations is that data science and user research are disparate departments that live in different parts of the organization, Mm. right? Whereas to me, why would you not have those be as close as humanly possible to Mm -hmm. to each other, right? Like those are, those disciplines should be married at the hip, right? And ideally you also want to be getting things from passive signals like customer service. Customer service is a bunch of naturalistic conversations that are happening about behavior all day, every day. You Mm. just have to bother to read them and quantify them. Right. It's that probabilistic existing distribution of the world I want to that I world I live in now. Mm. Right. Not the world I want to get to, but that it can tell me things about the world I want to get to. So we have behavioral strategy. We're going to do that behavioral statement. Behavioral insights, right? We're going to go talk to these five people. We're going to look at the data. We're going to like, you know, get to this piece where we understand what's going on. We're going to map those pressures, promoting pressures, inhibiting pressures. And then we're going to do some design. Right. Because now I want to change the, st- I don't change behavior directly. I can't go to Eric and like pop open his brain, <laughs> and like poke it. And suddenly he like runs a, runs a running play every time I found the running play portion of the brain. And I'm just like, and he runs, but that's not how it works. Yes. All I can do is change the pressure. We're talking about being a parent, right? Which we talked about before. I know. Right. And I have some shared passion around, right? Being a parent. I want my son 
to wear particular clothing, clothing that keeps him warm enough, that protects him, like all these things. I can't directly control his behavior. I can't force him to wear something, right? Right. If he really doesn't want to, he's going to win that argument. He can just kick until those pants don't go on, right? Right. But I can make it more likely that he chooses pants A over pants B. For example, I can make sure that pants, I can put out his clothes in the morning. So he could wear B, but he'd have to go over to the closet, dig through the closet and find the B, right? It's, it's harder. So I've placed, I've removed some inhibiting pressure and just said, here's some pants. I've laid them out for you. Look how mm-hmm. easy this is, right? Yes. It doesn't guarantee he wears pants A, but it makes it more likely, mm. right? This is probabilistic, not deterministic. Behavioral science is about changing behavior, you know, increasing the percentage chance something will happen, mm-hmm. not guaranteeing it. Right, because there's all there's stuff that's going on you may not have control over. That's right. Earlier, you talked about the we. I think you were very prescient in saying, you know, here are the weaknesses of lab science. Right. The world is a dynamic place. These pressures are changing. He's a different kid. Maybe he slept more or less that day, or maybe you know watched a show and the kid was wearing red pants, and so for whatever reason he's thinking about you know like all these things are shifting right in in little ways but i'm not trying to control him 100 percent of the time i'm trying to make the best things more likely i like that that's that's that design phase i'm designing things that change the balance of pressures hey i've recognized the promoting pressures and i'm going to find ways to strengthen them Hmm. i've recognized the inhibiting pressures and i'm going to find ways to weaken them right that's that design piece and then finally this is the part you talked about earlier right this is science as method not i did it in a lab and then i applied it but i but I tested that something works in the real world. I scripted and then I tried it in practice and Mm. it it looks good on paper. Right. But I tried it. And that's that fourth part, which we sometimes call impact evaluation, right? It's the, how do I run an experiment? It's not big. It's not thousands of people. It's not an MVP. It's not a full fidelity, whatever. It's certainly not a Figma, right? It's not like a click through wireframe. What we're testing is the underlying intervention assumption. So if I believe, for example, Hey, you know, I am, I'm trying to get this guy to run and like, I, you know, I, I hear the pressure that is, Hey, when I run this way, I feel like you congratulate me. I'm not going to systematize that yet, but I'm going to make a really conscious effort to run a little experiment where for the next two weeks, every time Eric runs the ball, we'll be like, thanks man. Good job. Thanks man. Good job. Just going to try that experiment and we'll see if it makes him run the ball more. Yeah. And if it does, then I'm going to systematize it. I'm going to put it on the wall. We run the ball, right? I'm going to do the more permanent larger, you know, more expensive. Everybody gets a, we run the ball shirt, right? We all get matching. We run the ball tattoos. Like I got it. Yeah. <laughs> bigger version is, but I start with the small version just to test. Am I moving in the right direction? Yes. Right. Because right. Going back to our science fiction analogy, we've now in step one, we elucidated the world we want in step two. We understood why we have the world we have. In step three, we designed bridges between the two, things that get me closer to the world that I want, mm-hmm. cause people to walk into the world, the future that I have designed. And then in step four, I say, how good is this bridge? I shake it on it a little bit. Is it sturdy? Are people walking across it? Like, if not, why not? If yes, does it seem durable in something that I can scale up? How confident am I? Right? You, then I start building a more permanent bridge. You have just described my last year as a first-time founder you know, just, I've never built a, a product, right? I've built environments for performance, right? And so you're, you're evaluating all these things you said, but it's an organic thing that you walk into every day and it's just, you're, you're growing it, this little organism, right? This performance team. 
And my first thought process was, um, you know, I, I have this roadmap to where I want to get with this product. It's going to do X, Y, and Z, and we're just going to go do this. And then one of my advisors is like, no, 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 no. You have to go test this first. And uh, I'm like, okay. And so, you know, you're running a minimal viable product, all this kind of stuff, right? The funny thing is we learned so much in that time about like little things that I never thought were um, imaginable. But at the end of the day, my original assumption was confirmed, but there's all these other things that I didn't know would, would have like, it would have taken me another year. And by that time you run out of money and it's over with, right. Or the, you know, the dreams are gone, but this is, um, I think too many people in whatever situation they are in, in life, um, they have an idea and they just go do it. They don't like consider all the factors that could promote or prevent and then go test this a little bit, see if it works and then scale. And so this is a mental model really that for, for behavior, but it applies to so many other things. And it's very, very practical. And, and I love that you said test it a little bit yeah. because remember, we're not doing lab science. I don't have to be perfectly sure. I have to be Sure enough. And I love the right. fact that you railed on P-values. And oh, yeah. so for those that aren't like in the scientific community, you have this thing called a P-value. And like uh, to get a something published in one of these journals, it has to be 0.05, which means there's a 5% chance that what you saw really wasn't what you thought it was. And you're, you're mitigating risk. The reality is, and then now there's something called an effect size. And an effect size means like if I sleep more, let's just take this, if I sleep more, my mood is better. And the stronger that, the bigger that effect size is, the stronger there's a relationship. And we know that's true. I think everybody that's listening can go, yeah, when I get adequate sleep, I'm not as grumpy and I'm not a jerk. Um, but that's science. What we're doing in the real world in business or whatever you're doing, if there's a 20% chance that it's wrong and you have an 80% chance it's correct, you're running with that ball every single day. 100%. Because yes. I don't have to be right every time. We are so grateful to the Blueprint's title sponsor, The Festive Kitchen. The zany creators of The Festive Kitchen set out to create the perfect sweet, salty, crunchy snack with just a little bit of heat. After attempting numerous flavor combinations, they started sharing samples with family and friends who would ask, what is the name of this snack? Since there was no name, they just answered, I don't know, but it's freaking awesome. Hilariously, the name stuck and a new product was born. It's a snack and it's freaking addicting called... It's freaking awesome. You can order online now at shop.festivekitchen.com and itsfreakingawesome.com. Trust me, this snack tastes as cool as it sounds. Brace yourself because you'll be ordering frequently for your freaking fix. The good news is they now have a freaking monthly subscription. Again, it's available online at shop.festivekitchen.com and itsfreakingawesome.com. That's I-T-S-F-R-E-A-K-I-N awesome. Com. Science sets P less than 0.05 because other scientists are going to build things on top of that. Yes. So and there's a reason. Sure. Yes. 100%. But it's not. But that's not us. That's not what we're doing. We're doing real world science. Right. In real world science. We have this thing called cost. <laughs> called benefit. Yeah. Right. And time. So, that's right. Well, cost and benefit. Yeah. Time is a cost. Right. Yeah. And then there's potential benefit. And so. If the cost is sufficiently low and the benefit is sufficiently high, I can tolerate some uncertainty. Mm -hmm. right? And so startups went too far the other direction. What they said is, we'll just 
fail fast. Just throw stuff out there, fail fast, right? And, and the idea was it's okay to be super risky because the cost of failure is relatively lower. The problem is that creates a lot of waste. So I'm not saying- Waste in what ways? Well, you know, if you create an MVP based on nothing other than your own opinion and it doesn't work and you fail fast and pivot, that was a lot of work. That's yeah. And there are a lot of times that you could have run a very simple experiment with no code at all that would have shown you that was going to not work, mm-hmm. right? There is a lower cost way to, to find out that that was wrong. Mm. So on the one side, we have science, which is trying to be too sure, right? And on the other side, we have entrepreneurs who aren't trying to be sure enough. They're just spraying and praying, throwing things at the wall, just mm. failing fast. And what we really want to be in science is we want to tune our risk, right? We want to tune our risk. Mm. And so... The example I sometimes give um, when I interview quantitative scientists, so people to, to draw quantitative research and to evaluate experiments using data, I say, I have an intervention P.2. So as, as Eric said earlier, right, that means there's a 20% chance that whatever I think is true is actually not true at all. Mm-hmm. Right? It's either null or false. But there's an 80% chance I'm right. And most quantitative scientists who come from academia will be like, nice, you just throw that away. Mm-hmm. Right? There's, that's like, you know, it's not even P less than 0.05. Like you're, you're way, you're way, way yeah, too high, right? Yeah. And then I say, but you didn't ask me anything about the cost or benefit. Let me tell you what my intervention is. It's a tiny pill. It melts on your tongue. So you don't have trouble swallowing it. It tastes of unicorns and rainbow farts. Like it is the <laughs> like most magical, wonderful thing. It makes you regrow your hair, right? Like, you know. I would love that. Makes you look more attractive. It's amazing. It costs one penny to produce and has no known side effects, right? So costs are very low. And by the way, it cures all known forms of cancer. And there's an 80% chance I'm right that I have the cure for cancer that's basically free and has no side effects. And it regrows men's hair. And it regrows men's hair 80% of the time. Yeah, we're we're putting, we're going after it. Well, we might do, we might at least want to, you know, invest a little more. Certainty can be scaled. And so... I'm not, maybe I don't bet a billion dollars on the thing on the 80% chance I'm right. Maybe I bet a hundred thousand dollars, right. a little more research. And then, then I'm 85% confident. And so now I'm going to bet $500,000 and then I'm 90% confident. I'm going to buy a million dollars, right? We scale our investment mm. based on risk. And so we do experiments to de-risk things as much as we need to. It would be foolhardy to run a million experiments to tune some tiny KPI that doesn't actually matter to your business and costs a lot. Okay, I'm not so advocating that. What you just described to me, and I, I, you, you went from behavior scientist doing behavior science to at Microsoft, and you need to read the book because there's a really cool opening story about Bing searches and kids, and I thought it was really awesome. And then you go into venture capital. You what what just happened for me is I think you just described pre-seed, seed, series A, growth rounds. How did you take like what did how did you take these learnings in behavior design and apply it to evaluating a company or a founder or CEO? So so all good investors have a thesis, right? You have to have a thesis. It goes back to like the coaching analogy we made. There is a leap of logic that says, hey, you know what? I win games by running four yards versus, you know, completing really big. Those are, that's a strategy. And, you know, at some level of fidelity, both of those strategies are appropriate. We just have to believe in one and kind of go with it, right? So I, when evaluating companies for Microsoft, when I was, when I was 
doing Microsoft Ventures in New York City when I was looking at companies, deciding who was Microsoft was going to spend time with and get behind. What I was looking for was, A, did they clearly understand the world they were trying to create, right? Not forward from where they were, but backwards from where they want to be. Mm-hmm. Right? What does the world really look like when I was successful? It's shocking the number of times, for example, you talk to an entrepreneur and they haven't done the thought of experiment of what happens when it works, mm. right? And there's a lot of businesses that when you go, wow, if this actually worked, it sort of breaks itself. Like the economy breaks down or these other kind of macro factors. Uber is a really good example. I don't think, I think the founders of Uber and other gig economy startups insufficiently understood that if this became the dominant way of working, it would have serious labor model implications that were probably far, that would, that would make this very difficult to win. Mm. Right. And now they're having to do a bunch of work to backtrack, right? Because they insufficiently understood what would happen in the labor market if they did the thing that they, that they sort of thought. Right. And so one of the tests I always had for startups was, has the founder adequately understood what the implication of the thing that they're saying is if they take it to the extreme, right? If they mm-hmm. actually win, because that's what we want, right? We're trying to find back founders who are you know, building billion dollar companies that are going to win in a really big way. And anything mm-hmm. that wins in a really big way, as we see with Twitter or Facebook or Uber or whatever else, does change the world around it. And you want that change to be planned and thoughtful, not unintentional and scary. And unfortunately, that is, <laughs> you know, as, as we have evidence, as, as we have recent evidence of, that is not, you know, startups aren't thinking far enough ahead. No. Right? And, and it's understandable, right? Because they're just trying to get to tomorrow. They're trying to not die. Yeah. But if, if, uh, if you're spending all of your time trying not to die, you're not a good risk investor. Right, that's not a place that Microsoft wants to. Something the size of Microsoft wants to lean in. I need to. I need you to understand what it looks like when it's big. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And then two, how well do they really understand the pressures that are governing the existing behavior? Right. So the idea or product can sound really, really good, but it's not about sounding good. Sounding good is an insufficient reason to build something. Lots of things sound good. Right. It's. Do they adequately understand the pressures that create the behavior today and how their product will change those pressures? Mm-hmm. So, you know, going back to Uber, Uber did this really well. Mm-hmm. They understood, um, if you think about where Uber started, right? They started in the black car space. Mm-hmm. Like people don't, because it's morphed since then, people don't always remember this, but that's where they started. And there were other black car competitors, other black car startups that um, there was one that was like an Audi-based startup that that it was like called like Silver Car or something. And their whole value proposition was instead of kind of a beat up old black Lincoln, it will be a nice new silver Audi sedan. Okay. Right? The theory there, the theory of change would be the, the reason people don't take black cars is because there are insufficient promoting pressures. They don't like the car. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel luxurious enough. That's the problem. The problem is promoting pressure. Hmm. But it turns out that's not at all the problem. That's no, people get into all sorts of Ubers now. That's right. That wasn't the problem at all. The problem was they were expensive mm-hmm. and they were hard to get. I had to call in advance and then I could never find the guy. And like, yeah, know, it was hard to do. Uh, and they couldn't always go where I wanted them to go. You know, they'll go within 50 miles of the airport or wherever, but they won't always go sort of where I want to go. And they don't always know where you know it is. They're not like a cat. And so Uber said, hey, we're not going to try and introduce new promoting pressure. We're not going to do silver Audis. All we're going to do is try and remove the reasons not to do it. We're going to make it cheaper. We're going to make it more efficient. We're going to make it more uh, 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 more sort of travel effective. So mm-hmm. meaning like 
I can get where I need to go in a quicker amount of time and in a, and in a way that I can have more control over, right? I'm going to just remove inhibiting pressures, remove inhibiting pressures, remove inhibiting pressures. That's what I want to see. I want you to have an articulated theory of change where you can tell me the reason people don't do this more today is because of a promoting or inhibiting pressure. And here is how we're changing that promoting or inhibiting pressure, mm -hmm. right? A great, um, uh, a, a great example that I can think of from my Microsoft days was there was a, a company that did data analytics in the, in the farming space, mm -hmm. right? And they were, there were lots of companies doing agricultural analytics at the time, but most of them, their theory of change was that farmers weren't getting enough interesting information from it, right? That the, that the analytics weren't useful. And these folks said, no, it's not that the analytics aren't useful. They're just incredibly hard to use, right? So it's not that, they don't, that we don't have the right data and we're not giving the right recommendation, but no farmer is going to be able to access the system in the way that you have built it. And so they have to rely on an analyst instead of being able to analyze directly. Mm -hmm. So we believe it's all about reducing inhibiting pressure to taking the recommendation. We need to make clearer recommendations that are easy for a farmer to do in the language that the farmer knows, as opposed to we need better recommendations, mm -hmm. right? You can spend a lot of money trying to make better recommendations, but in reality, you're just going to make them easier. I think of, I built a little um, side project once where uh, we made a little app to recommend lunch, recommend lunch. And everybody at the time was chasing personalization, you know, increasingly large machine learning models that suck in increasingly large amount of information. So I can make a really accurate recommendation about what you should be eating for lunch. So I did the polar opposite. It was in fact, totally random. So it told you it was hooking up to your Facebook, but it took down no data. We ran nothing. <laughs> All we did was give you a close, highly rated on Yelp, reasonable lunch spot, right? So if it wasn't super expensive or super cheap and it was close by and it was reasonably highly rated, and then we just randomly selected from that list. It was literally like mm -hmm. a one-line piece of code that was like, pick randomly from this list of restaurants that are closest person. People loved it, right? People gave us reviews. They were like, you know me so well. You know, I can't believe you recommended this spot. It was such a perfect spot. Right? They had the perception that it was really personalized for them. It really, it was just stupidly easy. You hit a button and it said, go here. And that's all people needed. They didn't need choices, right? They didn't want the inhibiting pressure of choice. Mm. They just wanted to be told, go here, do this, right? So we had the opposite philosophy of everybody else. And I think, so I love startups that have a, they're not contrarian in the sense that they're just building opposite other people's you know, sort of building direction, but they have an opposite, opposite theory about whether it's inhibiting pressures or promoting pressures that are the problem. Mm. And that was sort of my thesis. Do they, they have clearly understand the implications of what they're building? And do they have, are they targeting pressures on the opposite side from everybody else? And to hmm. me, that felt like a reason why. And sometimes I won and sometimes I lost because welcome to BC. Yeah. Wow. I really love this. This is so cool. I mean, I'm taking a lot of notes selfishly right now, but um, it makes a ton of sense that we don't think in the future, like what is the actual consequence of our decisions? I mean, if you just really break it down, like if we do this thing, if I make this decision, you can take this in anywhere in your life, relationship, education, whatever you're doing, like what are the outcomes going to be? And is that really the future I want to live in? Um, and, and this is, this is just a lot of great wisdom. So I have three questions that I ask every guest. Okay. Oh, okay. The first one, what does high performance mean to you? A high performer for me is someone who is, I think it goes back to the experimentation thing we said, 
a high performer for me is someone who is controlling their effort, controlling and directing their effort. So there's a scene in uh, the movie Training Day, right? Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke. And if you haven't seen the movie, Denzel Washington is it's Ethan Hawke's first day as a narco cop. Denzel Washington is like oh, his older partner. Ethan Hawke gets high mm-hmm. about how that happens. And they go to the guy who is like, was Denzel Washington's older partner now retired. Go to his house. Ethan Hawke's kind of like high. The other guys are like having a drink and they're talking about the secret of the street. And Ethan Hawke in his sort of highness comes up and he says like, I know the secret of the street. And Denzel Washington's like, shut up. Yeah. Drunk guy. Uh, but Ethan Hawke says, control your smiles and cries. And that's what high performance is to me. Defining here are the set of things I'm going to allow to make me happy or sad. This is where I'm going to invest my emotional energy and the energy in my life. And these are the things I'm going to choose not to care about. And so a high performer for me is a person who is, it doesn't matter to me what they pick, right? Like I'm not in the business of telling people that the thing that they picked is an appropriate or inappropriate thing to value, Mm -hmm. but it is that they've decided what they're going to value and they have focus on it. So like I wear the same clothing every day. Right. I've noticed that. I'm like, I'm like, I watch presentations. I've looked, I'm like, dude, I think this guy wears the same clothes every day, which is fine. The uh, inhibiting pressures are gone. That's right. I have a little script on eBay. It buys those, you know, it's a John Barbados 40 yard blazer, Nordstrom trim fit shirt, John Barbados blue jeans, you know, cowboy boots, like same thing. Just it's all used. Yeah. Like I know what it is. It shows up and then I wear it. That's fine. Because that's not a place I want smile or cry. If the blazer gets ruined, if my son comes in and squirts ketchup all over it, I'm like, cool, that was $15. I've done no harm to the environment because it would have gone in the trash anyway. Like, I'm not even going to dry clean that. It's just gone. Right. I'll get, a new, I'll get a new $20 blazer tomorrow, right? If you really care about clothes, you are you might cry. You might feel really bad if your son destroys something. And that's cool if that's your thing, right? That just doesn't happen to be my thing. Mm. So that's what I think a high-performer person A high-performing person is someone who can articulate to me these are my things and here is what I am doing to pursue them. And here is, and equally, here's everything I'm choosing not to care about. I love that. That is a fantastic definition. Um, so what practices, I mean, you just mentioned one, but what, what do you have in place right now so that you consistently perform at a high level at work, at home, whatever it may be? Uh, I try to surround myself with people who are aware of my focuses, mm. right? So, um, uh, my girlfriend is awesome. I love her. She's amazing. It was abundantly clear from the moment we started dating. Hey, you know what? My son is a priority to me. I have a prior relationship. That relationship is important to me. Like being a good dad is really important to me. And she was laser. She got, she got it. She's like, mm-hmm. I understand. I understand what your focus is. We're going to do this together. Right. And so that's, that's what I, the thing that helps me be high performing is surrounding myself with people who are aware and aligned with what my things are. Now that doesn't mean it has to be their thing, right? I'm not asking you to say, Hey, this is the thing I really care about. I'm asking you to recognize that it's important to me and be aligned because you care about me with that important to me. And uh, that is, I think people, people in my environment, that's the best practice I have. I love this. So how are you investing in your personal growth right now? Is there something you're learning about or leaning into to upskill yourself? So this is interesting. And I think people often uh, uh, believe that it will be the opposite, but I'm a very passive learner, 
right? So it isn't that I'm like, I, I read almost no nonfiction other than primary source material. I only read fiction uh, for a variety of reasons. And so my biggest learning is uh, if I am maintaining my focus appropriately on the things that I've identified that are going to be my smiles and cries, the things that I'm going to invest energy in, I will naturally, through the process of doing that, get access to other things. That said, you know, I'm reading a lot of primary source material about being a dad. My son is five and a half, which is an interesting transition period. My co-parent, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, he's also a psychologist. And so she can help me learn. Mm-hmm. Right. But I also need to do learning on my own about, okay, what does this transitional period mean? How do I effectively manage through this transitional period? What do I need to do to show up for my kid? And so that's where I spend a lot of time reading these days. I've read a lot, read a lot of studies. <laughs> There's actually shockingly not as many studies on, on good fathering as there needs to be. There's a lot of studies on good mothering. There's not very many studies on good fathering, which is an amazing gender bias where wire and, you know, cause I think we say that's ah, moms that are deterministic of the outcome and it's moms who are responsible for the outcome, which I think is wrong in both cases. Dads also are deterministic of the outcome and dads therefore bear responsibility towards that outcome. And it's just, I think, understudied. And so I'm diving into what exists, but I'd love there to be more. Wow. Matt, this has been a fantastic conversation. Like, you came in fired up, swinging, talking about cutting off ties. And this has been a wonderful conversation. I am so thankful that you decided to come on. If you have not purchased the book, if you are building a product, if you work with people, any if you're a parent, you need to buy this book. Start at the end. Matt Waller, you can get it on Amazon. Easy read. Um, fantastic stuff. So Matt, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is super fun. You know, um, often... Oh, follow him on Twitter too. His Twitter feed is fantastic. What, what's the Twitter feed? It's, it's at Matt. Everything is Matt Waller. At, at Matt, Matt, Matt Waller. Waller. Sorry, go ahead. Matt Waller, Matt Waller.com, yeah. Matt at MattWaller.com. Um, thank you so much for having me. What, it's super fun for me because, you know, a lot of times I love, I love talking to people and, and I don't mind doing podcasts, but a lot of times I'm trying, you know, to explain the one-on-one level because I'm not talking to someone who necessarily has background. It's super fun that you do. Let's have a different kind of conversation, I think, right? Like, you know, to me, it's, I always enjoy our conversations because I think you bring a unique perspective from, from your experience looking at performance because performance, particularly elite performance is about those pressures, Mm. right? And they're totally unique pressures, uh, that, that I can't understand as not a pro athlete, but I can learn from, Mm. right. And sort of like the always, sometimes never started stop. Pro athletes are like the super always, mm. right? They're like, you know, an elite athlete is like the, you know, the, the goes to the gym every day. I don't want to go to the gym every day, but I sure have something to learn from the person who does. Yeah. Right. And I, I always just love it. And it's always super fascinating and super fun when we get to talk to each other. And so thanks so much for, for having me today. It's super fun. I know we're going to talk again soon. Um, I'm looking forward to the, you know, the, the rise of your product. Aim seven, baby. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> well, thank you. If today's podcast enriched your life in any way, please support the blueprint by sharing this podcast with someone you think could benefit from today's conversation. Also, please consider checking out the Festive Kitchen's amazing product. It's freaking awesome. It makes for a fantastic gift for a colleague, friend, or a loved one. Or as a freaking fun snack when you want something sweet and savory to tantalize your taste buds. 
Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home on the web at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.